Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. The Labor Party as a whole have made a really conscious attempt to try and actually reflect the diversity of modern Australia. I think they can do it even more. I think that their decision to, to do this was vindicated. I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Today's conversation is all about blokes and class in Australia in 2022. And I'm going to start by just saying that I was in my early 20s. I'd just moved to Melbourne when I first met people who'd come from a private posh school or who had come from full-on wealth. Having grown up in a rural area outside Canberra and gone to various public schools in Canberra where we were all comfortably poor or lower middle class, I'd never actually encountered rich people. And I didn't know anyone from a private school. And I don't think it was that abnormal back then. And I remember when I moved to Melbourne, noticing that these posh people all spoke fully ochre, like they were sheep farmers from way out west who'd not finished primary school. It struck me as really strange. Then when I moved to Sydney in my late 20s, this all seemed to dial up. It took a year or two for me to work out that it was some sort of badge of honour to say that you'd come from the Shire or out west, even if it meant inner city glebe. And when working in media, specifically the Kerry Packer empire in its heyday, I learned that rich white men in particular styled themselves as beer-swilling larrikins in order to get ahead. I was surrounded by these, you know, Mick Mundines who went to Scots College and drank like yobs, but on yachts. Now, as many of you know, Australia has just emerged from an election, one where the losing LNP or Liberal National Party donned high-vis vests and took the U-butte Aussie bloke thing to new lows. It was all about battlers and tradies and welding stuff and utes and fair goes. Scott Morrison, the former PM, ignored women and tried to claim that class differences didn't exist because we all get equal opportunities in Australia, right? But, well, for the first time in many decades, we didn't buy it. In fact, the large proportion of Australians rejected this kind of speak. The myth of the larrikin is something that writer Lech Blaine has been studying for some time. He's originally from Toowoomba in Queensland, and he went on to be the first person in his extended family to go to university. He wrote a quarterly essay in September last year, which I read, and it was called Top Blokes, The Larrikin Myth, Class and Power. And for this month's monthly journal, he runs a sublime 11,000-word overview of the election titled Teal and Loathing, and it assesses Scott Morrison's demise as a reflection of the need to move on from this 
top bloke trope. I have been wanting to talk blokedom for a very long time, why it defines so much about this country and how it holds us back. And so I'm pumped to have had Lek join me in my study literally the day before I flew overseas to Europe, which is where I'm recording this introduction, to chat this wild and refreshing idea. Might it be time to kill off the larrikin bloke myth and move forward? Welcome to Wild Lek Blaine. Thank you so much for joining me here. Yeah, great to be here. Having read both of your essays, what I want to discuss with you is this idea that everyone in Australia wants to say they're a bachelor. You know, everyone wants to be the larrikin. And it's very much escalated over the last couple of years in politics, but the origins go way, way back. Can you talk us through the origins of this larrikin myth? Yeah, so white settlement in Australia, obviously we descended from convicts. So, and a, and a lot of the uh, basis for our original post settler society was based around a deep sense of anti authoritarianism and a real identification with the sort of scoundrel or the, the underclass or the battler. We had a, lots of Irish Catholic in Sydney and, and Brisbane, especially not so much in the Southern States. And so with them came their own sense, like even deeper sense of like anti authoritarianism and anti Britishness and a real identification with radicalism. And so then Ned Kelly comes along. You've got Eureka happens, very strong Irish Catholic influence on that. Ned Kelly comes along. He's an Irish Catholic. He encapsulates a lot of these sentiments in a really specific individual and becomes quite infamous throughout the colony. And, and then- um, Becomes our first hero. Yeah, like a almost like a cele- like a public celebrity type figure, like which is quite like quite weird that someone of that ilk would would become that. But yeah, I guess he encapsulated a lot of the feelings within Australia's working class, and so you had not just the Irish Catholics, but like English working class people who came to this new colony and suddenly weren't trapped by the sense that they were in England, where there is a very sort of concrete class system, and so. Yeah, so Ned Kelly had a lot to do with it. And then you had all of that sort of paintings like Frederick McCoven, you know, man hard on his luck. and Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson uh, embark on this sort of literary pissing contest between each other. And, That's right. And, they, and they, um, they were really trying to define Australianness. And, and But they were both sort of quite small intellectuals, right? Yeah, well, Banjo Patterson went to Sydney Grammar and um, Henry Lawson was probably from more humble means, but he was quite effeminate. There's even rumours that he might have had relationships with men and so that um, as a means to overcompensate for his effeminacy, he sort of really lionised blokiness. In, yeah, with that poetry. In, in, yeah. in his poetry. And, and, yeah. I remember reading that in your quarterly essay, Top mm. Blokes, about that sort of, yeah, pissing contest between two sort of effeminate guys who went into that really jocular, blokey kind of legend stuff. Mm. And we define ourselves, the country, by this, their poetry. Yeah. So weird. Yeah. And as I said, they were both sort of overcompensating. And there's so, there's so much other stuff that goes into this, but then I guess once you get it through to the war was the next big thing that happened, like in, in Gallipoli. Gallipoli, yeah. Yep. And, and so all of these ideas that White Australia had about itself really got, again, given this new mythology and, and this sense that we didn't bow towards our masters and, and that, that was what sort of happened over in Gallipoli where there was, um, well, at least in the myths that we tell ourselves, Australian soldiers had a, had a real larrikin streak. They didn't show too much deference to the British but they were very brave. And, and, yeah, yeah. But, but also like it showed black humour under pressure, like even in the midst of all that sort of stuff. And obviously there's elements of this which is 
uh, there's a fair bit of bullshit, but then there's, <laughs> you know, like there, there were in terms of it's been written about the experiences of, of Australian soldiers in prisoner of war camps tend to be better because they were more egalitarian minded. They were willing to share the rations that they had, whereas American and British soldiers maybe didn't exhibit the same trace to the same yeah. level. So so the larrikin top bloke thing, it was kind of legitimate to some extent. Yeah. And well liked on the world stage for quite some time. And we, we managed to export that image quite successfully. Let's jump ahead now to sort of when rugby league really started to define the bloke. And it really was rugby league, wasn't it, that divided the nation in many ways? Yeah, well, well rugby league is, is very much it's a sport that's a lot more dominant in Queensland and New South Wales. Partly, maybe that was like a historical fluke, but I think that a, a big influence on that was this Irish Catholic population and, and rugby league was a sport from the north of England, which was all about the players getting paid. Rugby union was an amateur sport and a large reason why it remained amateur was that people who could play could afford to play it. They were doctors and stockbrokers. That's right. They could do it as a pastime. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so it's, it's sort of like excluded players from the – North of England, who were on the whole a lot of the time working class and 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 better because they were they were like well working with their their hands and that came out here and I think that yeah in Brisbane and and Sydney it really took off because there was this labour movement orientated Irish Catholic population the start of rugby league was all it was all led by Catholics and it was there was still in Australia at the time there was still quite a lot of sectarian divides between Catholics and Protestants and so post war it's interesting because. When this whole larrikin trope started to become commoditized by advertisers, which is sort of like the 70s, and you mm-hmm. saw the emergence of Bob Hawke on a national level, followed by Paul Hogan. Mick, and- Mick Dundee, all yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and then um, another guy who I touch on in the essay who's quite interesting is Kerry Packer, who came from a very upper-class background. I think his uncle had played rugby union for Scotland. So he- all of a sudden, I think in the early 70s- He went to his first yeah, rugby league with, game and had a pie, right? Yeah, with a guy named John Quayle, who I interviewed for a completely different essay a couple of years ago about rugby league. And he just rocked up on a Saturday afternoon in a pair of tracksuits and a hat. And he got a, the memo. Yeah, had a meat pie and a beer. And he never looked back. He became like a really obsessive rugby league fan and actually invested a lot of money in it, both with Channel 9 and as a gambler as well. And Sydney was a bit different because Melbourne doesn't didn't really have the sporting divide. The working class and the upper class all got around AFL. So there wasn't sort of this divide. Whereas, yeah, if you're in Sydney, it became like a really easy way to signify your identification with the battler is to go to a rugby league game and sit on the hill instead of going to you know a game of rugby union on the North Shore and the Eastern Suburbs. So a lot of these teams were based around really working class neighborhoods, which aren't so much anymore. Places like Belmain, which are actually quite like affluent now, but the, yep. like they were very, yeah, they were sort of like the, the blue collar areas of Sydney at the time. Yeah. We'll get to how that then feeds into politics in a moment, but really we've been talking about all men so far mm. and it really begs like who gets to be a larrikin in this country? There were actually quite a few prominent examples of women who drew on all of these same influences. And, and then one of the things that happened after the war was that these tropes of nationhood became solely focused around men making like 
the ultimate sacrifice in terms of like dying for their country. Mm. And so even though a lot of the people who would later then draw upon these myths certainly weren't making the same sort of sacrifices, it became a really male dominated, our national mythology was so male Male dominated, top bloke. Yeah. And so, and and that um, was partly where drew on the, this, this white colony, which the male population was a lot higher than the female population. And so this all goes back to what I was saying about uh, like Henry Lawson, for example, there's a, if you go back through the history of it, there's a real homoerotic streak running through white Australia's colony. And so this really, this, this, really, this hev- heavily macho culture, a lot of the time was actually like covering up these quite intense friendships between men, which um, sometimes overlapped into sexual relationships because there weren't a heap of like- Women around. We, there weren't a heap of w- women around. In the trenches and, yeah, the and there weren't sheep a heap stations. Of, there were, were, yeah, on the sheep stations, there weren't a heap of women around. And as, yeah, as you said, in the trenches either, so- so mateship, some of the origins were based in really quite intimate mateship. Yeah, yeah. Mm, sort of like a Brokeback Mountain type. But in the main, in Australia, when you talk about who gets to be the laid back Aussie, it's white privileged men, really. You know, it, it really is interesting, isn't it? And there's so many examples of, of people who actually fit those stereotypes so much better, but as soon as they're not a white man and they exhibit any sort of sense of anti-authoritarianism, they get hounded down by all yes. of these figures on the, especially within our right wing media who are, who don't exhibit any of those traits of like egalitarianism yeah. or, or yeah, being particularly laid back or being, being from frontier like, yeah, being pioneering. from working class origins. But then, yeah, there's this real sort of policing of who's Australian and who's un Australian. And you see that word un Australian gets thrown around so much. And yeah, generally it's for people of colour. And- it's the people who actually write the rule book on it. Yeah. yeah. That's, I, I think there's so many implications of that, of course, because of course, when you define who is the Australian and who's un Australian, it excludes a whole range of people. And it also can justify that exclusion really well. It masks all the sins that perpetuate power and the distancing between the haves and the have-nots. I think you talk about this a little bit in both of your essays. It can cover up racism and misogyny and abuse and drunkenness. I mean, if you ever look at how many of our heroes, our national sporting heroes who behave like barricans, they're basically pissed, yeah. you know, rest in peace, Shane Warne. But so much of what we revered about him and a lot of his behavior was in and around um, that really pissed culture, drunkard culture. Mateship also covered up massacres. That laid-backness that is also part of the larrikin so-called spirit covers up a lot of anti-intellectualism, right? I personally have witnessed that. If you're somebody who has an opinion or you perhaps present an alternative idea or you want to have a nuanced discussion about things, you are very quickly shut down in this country as, oh, don't be so serious. Oh, my God, you're hard work. Yeah, don't think, do. Like that was always a big thing. Like I I grew up in pubs, so, yeah, I was like surrounded by (laughs) pissed blokes. uh, Telling you you think too much. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't happen in the rest of the world. Like I've travelled a lot and if I'm in the States or if I'm in Europe, that kind of conversation is encouraged. It's relished. It's respected and revered. Yeah, and there's more open displays of emotion and- All of that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, yes, the anti-intellectualism that we've observed, I think, in this country over a number of decades now- I feel really does stem back from the way that you've set up this idea of the larrikin and that trope, you know. Mm. That's been my 
personal experience, but there's also that idea of the fair go and the egalitarianism. And what that I think really masks is the inherent inequalities in this country, like yeah. class. You know, we talk about a whole range of things. And I think it's um, Megan Davis in your essay, who I interview in the podcast series, the election series that I did. She sort of said that class is one of the really unspoken about divides that still exists in this country. And we love to pretend Australia is classless, don't we? Is that the case? It becomes so concrete when, like I grew up in country Queensland and then um, moved to Brisbane, spent a bit of time after school in Bundaberg as well, and then came down to Sydney. And so Sydney's, I, I love Sydney. I think it's like- You have to preface it with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's one of, the, one of the most, I've traveled a fair bit and it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world, I think. But class system here is so- visually concrete because like I live in the eastern suburbs and it's like there is Sydney's class divide is so visual and so obvious. You sort of see how if you grew up in the eastern suburbs or the North Shore, you might not ever even need to leave there unless you have family connections in like the Western Sydney, like you might not ever go there. Like it's such a sprawling city and yeah, it, it is actually quite easy to get stuck if you go to a private school in the eastern suburbs and then you go to university. In the eastern in suburbs. In the eastern suburbs. Like it's, and then you get your stockbroking job in and, the eastern suburbs. Yeah. And, and so in, in a weird way, it's like you're technically like Sydney's got such a diverse culture at people's disposal, but yeah, it, it, it's very easy to get stuck in your own bubble. And I think that that goes to this idea Australia has about it being classless. And I think that's why so many of these figures, like your Kerry Packers, appropriated these mannerisms to try and signify that they were just like everyone else. Really, I don't think it was fully conscious, but sometimes it was conscious. Sometimes it was just an advertising trick to try and say to people, I'm just like you. And what that actually did was it said, don't worry about all of the enormous wealth that I'm accruing and the fact that it's like leading to a more inequitable society because I'm just like you and, you know. What's you're a, a mate. Yeah. And don't like, and if you kick up a stink about it, then you're an Australian and you're not a- There we go You're again. not a mate, you're not a bloke. It's a form of gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? Because if you put up your hand and go, no, no, there are inequalities because you just- but you don't see them, then they go, oh, come on, that's un-Australian. Pipe down. Yeah. It's classless. And because it's become, we've actually gone from being a fairly, um, like a lot of the issues that Australia, white Australia is um, introduced to this continent throughout the 20th century, we did actually have like a really equitable economic system. We had a really strong trade union influence at the same time as that was really wound back, especially post-1983 with a lot of the deregulations that were happening, which really decimated the trade union movement. This character and this idea of Australia being a classless society actually became a lot more writ large within media, within advertising, at the same time as Australia it's actually started to become- dismantled. Yeah. yeah, started to become like a really unequal um, society a, a, to the point, like, and that hasn't happened overnight, but like over a long period of time. And I think that COVID, the people who- were most affected by COVID lived in suburbs where it was a lot easier for them to be locked down by politicians because they aren't part of the traditional power structures of our society and they would do jobs which are more affected by lockdowns. And It was the great revealer. I often say mm. COVID was the great revealer. It like peeled back the scab in so many different ways, mm. but you're absolutely right. And, and, and so a lot of people in the eastern suburbs who do white collar work and I lived in a house with lawyers and so they really didn't skip a beat. 
No. Like the like well, it was- the rich got richer. Mm. And so the the asset class in Australia, like the share market, the property market, like they went through the roof. So if you went into COVID with assets and with investments and you were also earning a salary that wasn't affected by lockdowns, well then by the end of it, and we saw like also these enormous transfers of wealth to some of our richest companies by the coalition government. While we were all distracted with COVID. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I think that we went into COVID already in a pretty bad spot when it comes to the growing divide between the rich and poor in Australia. And I think that it's actually a COVID, it's actually accelerated that. And we're probably not really paying full attention to that because we're so, we don't really want to think about COVID too much. And we definitely don't want to think about class. class. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you started to touch on politics there. So let's just go back to that. You know, you mentioned that in the 80s, things started to move. Things started to shift a little bit. The trade union setups shifted and we started to see a dismantling of the egalitarian practices and structures. But I think things really started to get quite interesting in the 90s. That was a really pivotal moment for what I take from reading your various essays was a bit of an inversion, this inversion that we've been talking about, where if you're posh, rich, privileged, you really take on the larrikin bloke kind of voice and all the various mannerisms and, and, and so on. And if you came from genuine working class roots, you just didn't. If anything, you tried to aspire to have a neutral voice mm-hmm. and you aspired, I suppose, to go beyond your roots. The 90s was interesting because that 1996 election when Howard won by really weaponizing the battler vote, that's when we really started to hear, you know, this idea of Howard's battlers and so on. And what's really interesting, of course, he won against Paul Keating, who was a genuine battler. Mm. You know, he didn't even finish high school, I don't think. He certainly no, didn't, he didn't go, go to university. university. Yeah. And I'll quote from your essay. It's, it's wonderful writing. It was like in a battle between a Zegna-wearing Ned Kelly and of course, that's Paul Keating, and Robert Menzies in a tracksuit, a nation of self-proclaimed larrikins voted overwhelmingly for a paternalistic nerd, Howard, who offered them the democratic version of Valium. And of course, in that era, we also had the rise of Pauline Hanson and One Nation. We also saw the Cronulla riots. What was happening in this pivotal era? We talk about Australia being a laid-back place to begin with, and that, like, Howard was so explicit about that. He, he talked about he wanted Australia to be relaxed and comfortable. What that was responding to was in the early 90s, Paul Keating became Prime Minister. He made the Redfern speech. He embarked on native title reform. Mabo happened. And so what was actually leading up to Howard coming to power and then the rise of Point Hanson was a deep sense of anxiety within a lot of white Australians about that they were going to lose their property. And their storyline. Yeah. And so- Howard, he coded a lot of his language about this, but he also needed to disseminate images to people that they would be able to sort of get what he was coming from. And so that's why he constantly draped himself in the paraphernalia of, of Australianness in terms of the Australian flag. The Wallabies The Wallabies tracksuits. Track and always talking about how he, his love of just normal Australian things. And I, I, I don't think was completely fake. Like I think that he, he was legitimate within that. It was I, that white bread. Yeah. I think that he did really like humbleness and humility, even though he was, you know, a career politician who had a pretty reasonable upbringing. He was almost a product of bloke culture, right? He wasn't blokey at all. So he was, no. he wasn't a beer drinking in Canberra. But he, he represented them in some way. Yeah. And, and they I, actually really loved it because that's, he, he came along. And so what's happening in the nineties, and as I said, part part of this was race was a big thing in it, but there was also a sense that Keating, who was trying to escape the trappings of the working class, and Bill Hayden was a lot the same. He had a very working class background, and they both really tried to aim 
a lot higher in terms of the ideas that they espoused, the way that they spoke. Hall comes along. He actually had a quite privileged background when was a Rhodes Scholar. He rejected all of that and said, I love sport and I love beer and I love women and people adored him for it. Keating obviously knifed him. Keating became seen as a symbol of the elitism in Australia. And- it's just sort of, it's also ironic, isn't it? Because a big part of that bloke larrikin culture is being able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and come also, from nothing, and, and, and you can wear an expensive Italian suit. Yeah, and also being, the, like he was, in a lot of ways, he was a classic larrikin. Like he was a bit of a shit stirrer and he was- He was anti-authoritarian in that sense that, yeah, he, he could- he, he came from an Irish Catholic background and that's, I think, fed into why he stuck himself out so much on native titles that he really disliked the British- colonialism. That was the culture that he came from. And then Howard comes along and he both deeply believes in British culture and the supremacy of British culture. And he is able to reassure all these people on the one hand and say, we're not going to let these elites start acquiescing to the Aboriginal population here. We're just going to stop this kind of rapid change that's been happening. Multiculturalism had been a big thing. We're going to this, like, slow this all down. And the great irony is that he actually amped up immigration. So it's not that he stopped people coming here necessarily. It was that he changed the conversation that was happening and was saying he wasn't a believer in multiculturalism. Like His whole thing was, if you come here, you should assimilate to the dominant culture, which in his view was white British culture. Mm, It's so interesting because that era to me sort of signifies when we started to sort of shake up this larrikin mythology, you know, it got poked a bit and rattled a little. We were encouraged to question it and start to think about these other broader ideas of identity here in Australia, including recognising Indigenous people fully. But we clamped down. We went, nut, nut, nut. We want this old way. We want the old larrikin blokey thing. We're not ready to let go of it yet. But then, of course, we cut to the most, this recent election. Your new essay in the monthly covers off the campaign. You went on the cam tra- campaign trail and you looked at it through this lens that we're talking about here. And I just find it so interesting because I just finished a series about the election. So listeners are probably familiar with some of these storylines, but we know we had Scott Morrison, who was an Eastern suburbs of Sydney toff, who supported rugby union big time. He was into theatre and the church. He lived at home until he was 24, which I read in your essay, and got handed his first job via daddy and got handed job after job via sort of various kind of privileged connections, but then came out sort of in this campaign calling himself a mortgage belt liberal, identified himself as coming from the Sutherland Shire when he was literally planted in there as a representative, took up rugby league almost overnight and called himself ScoMo. So he basically self-styled himself as the Bogan. And then we had Albanese who legitimately Ultimately came from Housing Commission flat, single mum, is rugby league personified. You couldn't get anyone more hardcore, original style rugby league, who happened to trim down a little, put on a smart suit and some sort of fashionable glasses and got completely shredded for it, you know, for again, doing what Paul Keating tried to do. It was such an interesting election from that point of view. Tell us a bit about what you saw, you know, through that sort of that lens of the larrikin myth. Well, this is a this is a whole thing. Is that yeah, Albanese? A lot of the insults that get thrown at working class people in this country, and they can be quite coded, but he just personified it all. You know, he was a son of a single mum, a bastard basically. Didn't know his father growing up. Grew up in a flat. Pronounced his name wrong until he realised he was Italian. Yeah. And, and so the the really interesting thing about the last few years and the journey that he's embarked on in terms of his, the leadership style that he wanted to create was that he really recognised that Australia 
has changed and is continuing to change. Because of the cultural touchstones that I, that I find really familiar, a part of me really wanted to see him just be like the full-blown elbow and constantly refer to the Rabbitohs, who I have a massive soft spot for, and drink a beer and all that sort of stuff. But Labor and him made this really conscious attempt to say, well, that's not really Labor's base of supporters anymore. Like Labor's got a very feminine support base, very multicultural support base. A lot of those cultural touchstones, such as rugby league, don't make any they sense. They read the room. Yeah, they, they don't make any sense in mm. Western Australia or South Australia or, or even Melbourne to a certain extent. And so what Morrison did was he tied himself really specifically to a culture which is out of suburban, regional, Queensland, New South Wales, that doesn't make a whole heap of sense to a large part of the country, even large parts of Queensland and New South Wales who aren't totally in step with that culture. And so that then became exemplified more throughout COVID because those Southern states really did viscerally feel like Morrison had abandoned them and that his priority was New South Wales and Sydney. And so Labor saw this opportunity and it obviously ended up coming to fruition where they what they won Boothby in Adelaide and they won Chisholm and Higgins in, in Melbourne and they won a whole suite of seats in WA. And I'm not putting it, uh, that's not just because of intervening factors in terms of COVID, in terms of the popularity of climate policy sta- state, as well. state leaders. But I think that Labor really wanted for Albanese not to be seen as ScoMo 2.0, which is quite ironic given that he was the original ScoMo in a lot of ways. But they wanted him to be seen as like a national leader who took politics seriously, who wasn't seeking to trivialise the office or constantly refer to the sharks in press conferences when it was completely irrelevant to what they were talking about. And so I think that 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 decision was ultimately vindicated. Yeah, it's really interesting. In one of the episodes I did for the election series, it was with Karen Middleton, who wrote the biography of Anthony Albanese. And she referred to the fact that you know, somebody he used to work with said, oh, you know, I like to think I'm three steps ahead of most people. Albo is 10 steps ahead, like his ability to strategize. Did you see that what he was doing in terms of going, I'm not going to just represent the Larrikins, I'm going to try to represent a broader Australia. Was that a strategy, do you feel? Totally, yeah. And it was like, there's various layers to what he was doing. And so I interviewed him last year, and I always thought that he would really come out at some point and do the- You beauty. Like the ScoMo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, like I, I thought that that was sort of inevitable and that it would be a marketing opportunity. And he just made a really conscious decision not to do that. And so he may also made a conscious decision not to intervene early in the coalition's response to COVID. He, he felt that Australians would- would look badly upon an opposition who would who were overreacting. And so there was a lot of discontent on the progressive side of politics within the Labor Party as well. About, they felt he wasn't fighting hard yeah, enough. Yeah, he wasn't fighting like this like Tory the Tory fighter, where's all of his fight gone? Because he was he was the Labor's attack dog. Yeah. You know, yeah. in the past. And I did pick up on that sentiment where people were like, how come he's just like nowhere to be seen? Mm. He's not, you know, and just I think shredding the, the, the government. The, the only two opposition leaders in Australia who who survived that period were Melanouskis in South Australia, who subsequently won the election this year, and then Albanese as well. And so it was part of this idea that when the coalition did make really big slip-ups in terms of vaccinations and in terms of rats, Australians wouldn't be fatigued about having heard them. They wouldn't just see them as opportunists who were just anti-everything, that they could go really hard on the stuff when it really mattered, but then otherwise just step back. And like the other thing was the coalition for three years were constantly trying to wedge Labor on a whole bunch of different social issues where they were trying to divide Labor from their traditional base in areas such as 
as the Hunter Valley in outer suburban New South Wales and Queensland. And Albanese just allowed a whole heap of different issues to sort of this not define him, not dominate the news mm. cycle, just to, to to step away from it a bit. And because of another big problem with Labor between 2013 and 2019 was that they had so many policies, and they were co- they were constantly responding to issues in the news cycle and making promises to to fix things. And then by the end of that six years, they went to the 2019 election with this this enormous 151 suite. policies. Yeah, or something. And, and so he 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 had this really conscious strategy, and he talked about it last year when I met with him. That and it's like a common cliche that he was always wheeling out that it's about kicking with the wind in the fourth quarter, and that's what they ended up doing. Like and like there was a lot a lot of times where I wondered whether it was going to be effective. Like I. It's not like it seemed completely peerless because you weren't really going to be sure until the election happened. But I remember early in the campaign when he what he did make a few slip ups, and I was having a chat with someone from Labor, and that saying like, okay, there's a lot of people saying that they need a just a, a more someone who's a better performer in the media. What what's the alternative view to that? Like, what is it that someone else who might be a better media performer won't bring to that job? And they said, well, this is the thing: is that he's not the best orator in the world and he's not as slick as some of the others, but there is actually a difference about having the amount of experience that he does and having the temperament that he does. And so someone who was a little bit more egotistical or maybe who did back their own charisma, there would have been a real temptation when things were really bad for Labor and when it looked like they were a long way behind during COVID when Scott Morrison became really quite popular again, there would have been a temptation to come out with a big, brash, dramatic policy that might have actually ended up inadvertently crueling Labor's chances of getting in because obviously big brash policy Nobody likes agendas them. lost them the last election. So, yeah, I think there actually are tangible advantages in, in terms of having this more sort of cautious, hardened temperament that only comes from being in politics for such a long period of time, coming from a completely different side of the Labor Party, coming from this left perspective. Like there's, He's had to weigh up so many different things constantly for such a long period of time that it gives him a real insight. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So in many ways, really, Albanese and the Labor Party were trying to move towards reflecting a more contemporary Australia. And we're moving beyond that larrikin myth, which he could have very easily sunk into. While Scott Morrison was really going hard at that blokey larrikin kind of battler thing once again, to the extent where he really let some of his key seats go in inner city Sydney, obviously. You know, he lost a lot of seats and that seemed to be part of the tactic. But it 
really didn't work, did it? It backfired. Australians didn't buy it. And in many ways, I think a lot of Australians felt it looked ridiculous, you know, and some of the stuff that Catherine Deves, you know, pulling out the Catherine Deves kind of tactic and, and some of those things, I think people started to feel quite cynical about it all. You even referred to the fact that, you know, this idea of really adhering to the coal mining roots at all costs when the rest of the world has moved on and it just didn't make financial sense. Even I've been speaking to coal miners who go, we need to make this transition. We kind of know it. You use this line, the coalition is filled with bullshit artists dressed in coalface. You know, they were really hanging on to this trope. And what I found really interesting in your most recent essay in The Monthly, you actually spent some time interviewing Queenslanders who uh, not only didn't buy it, they swung to voting for the Greens. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw there? Yeah, well, Queensland was really interesting in metropolitan um, seats in Brisbane, like um, three of them have gone to the Greens, which is pretty- um, Unheard yeah. of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and when I went up there, like uh, there was a few, there's a few people that I interviewed um, and I was going like, what's going on here? Is this just like a anomaly a- anecdotally? And then I, I'd talk to people from Brizzy and tell them that <laughs> I'd been chatting to these liberal voters who were switching to the Greens or Labor voters who'd switched to the Greens and they were like, oh, no, my, like my mum who votes liberal is- in suburban Brisbane is also switching to the Greens. And so I was like, oh, shit, this actually might be like a, a thing. A thing. <laughs> uh, and, and the really interesting thing that the Labor did as well is that when you actually go through all of the MPs that they pre-selected, and I think that they can do even more of this because those examples where they didn't were such as in um, Fowler with Christina Keneally where Lee should have been the pre-selected candidate there. Like she would have been brilliant and I think they would have won that seat with her. But Labor did pre-select quite a lot of candidates from really diverse backgrounds. Like I went around, the, like talked to people from around the country, like Zanita Mascarenas in Perth who won Swan and she'd grown up in rural WA in a mining town with a dad who was a fitter and turner on the coal mine, but they were Indian immigrants who emigrated yeah, to Australia awesome. by Africa and stuff. And yeah, she was amazing. And you sort of go like, she's able to enca- encapsulate so many of those traits that we talk about. She was really sort of like knockabout at the same time as that, that, that she's like a university educated engineer who believes in climate change, but she's capable of speaking to all these diverse constituencies, like not just from an ethnic point of view, but from a class point of view. And so there was quite a, like there's a number of candidates like that throughout the country. And Indigenous, a really high number yeah. of Indigenous. And, and and so I think that Labor, although obviously, obviously Albanese is a straight bloke and he still adheres to a lot of the cultural touchstones of Labor's past, but I think that the Labor Party as a whole have made a really conscious attempt to try and actually reflect the diversity of modern Australia. I think they can do it even more. I think that their decision to to do this was vindicated. Like if you look at WA, which is considered probably the second most conservative state after Queensland at a federal level, they elected some really diverse the candidates. The swing was massive as well to and, Labor. And, and there was, you know, a lot of that, There's, it's well documented, the issues surrounding COVID and Mark McGowan and Scott Morrison. So that's not all down to the candidates. But I, I think it really shows that when you put diverse candidates in front of people, even in places where they're not traditionally electing particularly diverse candidates, they, they will get behind them. And because the best thing about diversity is, is not just actually like starting to reflect our society, but the easiest way to say to voters, this person isn't a political insider is if they're from like an ethnically diverse background, because we've traditionally had such a white male political class and people are sick of that. Like people are sick of uh, Australia's political class. And the easiest way to signify that you're not part of that bullshit is to, is if you're a woman and if you're, yeah, like it's, I, I think it actually becomes like a real electoral advantage. 
there's been a real rebalancing, hasn't there? And I think, would you say a lot of people use this phrase to describe what happened to the LNP this election? They didn't read the room. They didn't even notice who else was in the room apart from their white privileged well, brethren. They were, they were still appealing to an idea of Australia, John Howard's Australia. And so- Ned Kelly Australia. Yeah. And, and, and so- Australia hasn't completely resolved the anxieties within this continent by any, like we're not even close. There's so many unresolved issues on so many different levels. The Greens voters in Brisbane, for example, I, then I interviewed a guy in Blair, which is Pauline Hanson ran there in 98. She got 35% of the, of the primary vote. And so at the last election, Labor suffered a massive swing there. And it was one of these seats that Scott Morrison was constantly talking about that the coalition were going to win to compensate for the loss of teal seats. I interviewed this guy who voted for the LNP for the first time at the last election. He's a traditional Labor voter. He's covered in tattoos. He's a metal worker like his dad. So he voted LNP in the 2019 yeah, election. Yeah, for the first time. And yeah. so he was really disillusioned with Scott Morris and he said, fuck ScoMo and rattled off a bunch of reasons why. But he was also pretty cynical about Labor and he had issues with Labor, doesn't like the Greens. And so I, I remember messaging him the night before election. And I, Who are you going to vote for? Yeah. And because I, I thought the way that he'd been talking, I was like, Maybe he's going to vote One Nation. Maybe he's going to vote UAP. I sort of got caught stuck in that cynicism of these right-wing sort of Of the last nine years as well. Yeah, and so he said, oh, mate, it was a really tough decision, but I ended up voting for Labor. And it was really interesting because he said uh, the LNP have just buggered up too many things, but they've also got no vision for the future. I really like the fact that Labor are going to invest in renewable energy and that they might start treating Indigenous people better. And so they're like- It's horrible that I'm about to say wow to that, right? Yeah. But that is because for the last nine years, but also for for longer really, we've been indoctrinated into thinking that Australians don't have those values. Yeah. And, and so the next day on, in Blair, there was LNP vote stayed pretty much the same. The One Nation vote lost about 6%. Half of it went to the Greens, half of it went to Labor. And so this seat, which had been earmarked as like where this peak dog whistling about tra- trans athletes and about China, um, it, it was provided a great opportunity to, to vindicate the coalition for pursuing that sort of strategy and um, and it didn't pay off. And so, that, as I said, that doesn't mean that the slate has been wiped clean of, of all of these issues, but Australia has cha- is, is changing uh, and that a lot of the issues that where people are voting might be voting for populists, I think e- economic anxiety has been a large part of that. And if progressives can really um, appeal to people's sense of like ec- economic stability, they can actually start to neutralize some of these wedge issues that the coalition have co- constantly been p- pursuing for the past 26 years. So where is class at in all of this? Because as you said, COVID very much revealed that class is real in in Australia as much as we like to sort of muffle it and pretend it doesn't exist. Now coming out of the election, is there a sense now that the battler looks different? The battler is not men who look like Scott Morrison. Do you think we're going to have a better appreciation for battlers and then also helping them out? Do you think there is a future for that? Well, I hope so. Yeah. I think that like um, in terms of what we need to address with aged care, for example, like the treatment, the payment of aged care nurses and like they're criminally underpaid. Yeah, we do need to probably reconceptualize what a battler looks like. And a lot of them are ethnically diverse women, but we they just don't fit within our idea of a tradie in high vis who might be earning 150k a year. And not that there's anything wrong with that at all, but I, I think that sometimes we can um, probably overvalue the political perspective of those voters because they've decided they've tended to, to be the voters that swing one way or the other and so they've tended to decide elections but yeah I, I I think that that was another thing about 
Albanese was that he, he wasn't completely immune to rocking up to mines and to factories, but he, he I, wore a bit of high vis. I don't think I don't th- I don't think he was he was pursuing that to anywhere near the same extent as what Morrison was, and I think that he did really try to preach respect for. Australia's healthcare workers for a lot of these industries that haven't been really appreciated, whether it's through the pay that they're getting, like people on a minimum wage, or whether it's through just the rhetoric that we use and who we prioritise in our national story. As I said, I don't think that's just about Albanese. I think that's about the whole team that a Labor assembles. And so I tried to interview a lot of potential new backbenchers. And I, I got lucky like talking to some really interesting ones who, whether it's like a former coal miner in The Hunter, Dan Ripacoli, who fully encapsulates all of these. these uh, Is he that massive yeah, behemoth of a man? Yeah. yeah. And, and so he encapsulates all, all of that blokiness. But it's about um, also not just pre-selecting him, but also pre-selecting Zanina Mascarenas or Michelle Ananda-Raja in, in Higgins, who do uh, do appeal to this new sense of where Australia is going. And so it's not one or the other. It's like like it, it like that. There there does need to sort of be just like a ability to embrace a wide array of identities, and that's what you essentially try to do. I think if you're the Labor Party, is try and pre-select as as many different candidates as you can, and then you end up producing this kind of like tapestry of Australia and that diversity of viewpoints and voices and faces will start to actually reflect modern Australia rather than sort of being stuck with this really stale, old, tired idea of of who we are. I could talk about this forever, but we do have to wrap it up. But I know that a big part of why you wrote these essays was that you had a sense that this larrikin myth was in many ways holding Australia back and that we need to dismantle it to be able to move forward as a country, you know, to reflect the country as a whole. So where do you think we stand as Australians now as we start to at least question, if not drop, the myth? I don't think it's about fully rejecting or renunciating like the traits of larrikinism. Like I think that I see a lot of those traits in um people that I know or people that I admire who are from really diverse backgrounds. And I think that it's possible to take the piss and 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 um, take the mickey out of authority. I think that that's a great- It's a lovely aspect I, of Australian I, culture I in many ways, yeah. except it's been exclusionary. Yeah, I, I, I think it's about in, in interrogating it, making it more inclusive uh, and, and sort of, yeah, as I said, just being willing to celebrate the wide diversity of Australia because we are such a diverse place and the more of a voice we can give to that within our parliament, like we're, our parliament still, even after the last election, is still nowhere near as diverse as Britain or America's political system. And that's something that we need to, in a country where we constantly talk about being the place of the fair go, like is is that- And uh, multicultural. Yeah, yeah. And, and we sort of tend to look down on America as being this redneck backwater. But like, yeah, I, I think we still have a long way to go and not just on a ethnic or racial level, but the just getting people into parliament who aren't from political class background who haven't been working the branches since they were 21. I think that's a, that'd be a great thing as well. And, and yeah, I think that it might start to address some of the disillusionment that obviously a lot of Australians feel about our political system. That's a lovely note to finish on. Thank you, Lec Blaine. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That was a absolutely awesome killer chat. And um, I'm going to answer the question that I posed, the wild idea. Might it be time to kill off the larrikin bloke myth and move forward? And I am going to answer a resounding yes. There's a quote actually in the monthly essay that's out now on newsstands from Lech, and it says this, Anti-authoritarianism doesn't need the vocabulary of the bush poets 
the accent of Mick Dundee, or the imprimatur of the shock jocks and media tycoons to inspire social change. It sounds like Grace Tame and acts like Baruz Bachani and looks like Adam Goods. I think that's as good a note to finish on as anything. I'd really love to get your comments on this. I think our conversation raised a number of contentious points, and I think it's held a mirror up to myself and um, a number of people I've discussed the conversation with since. So let me know your thoughts. The best place to comment is in my various social media comments sections and also my Substack newsletter, which is sarahwilson.substack.com. That's where I do most of my interaction with the community. So please sign up for that newsletter. It comes out weekly. And please also suggest any guests you would like on this podcast going forward. I'm in Europe, currently in Paris, sitting on the floor of a Airbnb, and I'm interviewing various people in London, here in Paris, and I'm really open to suggestions from you guys as to who you'd like to hear from. I'd also ask when you listen on whether it's Spotify or Apple, please go to the main page and give me a rating. It'd be greatly appreciated. Until next week, please stay wild and happy and expanded. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.